Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast, our program dedicated to featuring all of the exciting work which is being done in our field. Uh, joining us today is Aaron Rock Singer of the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and he'll be discussing his new book, Practicing Islam in Egypt, Print Media and Islamic Revival. We'll also be joined by Basil Salouk of the Lebanese American University. He'll be discussing a special issue of studies in ethnicity and nationalism um, on the question of consociationalism in the Arab world and the, and the various uh, contributions to that special issue. Finally, we'll be joined by Carolyn Barnett and Stephen Monroe, um, who along with Imani Jamal recently published an article in the American Journal of Political Science on earned income and women's segmented empowerment, experimental evidence from Jordan. Welcome to the program. Hi, welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and with me is Basil Salouk of the Lebanese American University and the organizer and author of a special issue on consociationalism in uh, Lebanon and Iraq and in the broader Middle East that just came out in studies in uh, ethnicity and nationalism. Uh, Basil, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. So tell me about the, uh, the special issue and the workshop that, uh, that, you, that you organized and uh, what do you think the major contribution of this uh, collection of papers is? So this, this, this was part of a bigger project, uh, uh, part of a very generous grant by Carnegie. And what we wanted to do, uh, I wanted to gather together a number of scholars working on uh, prospects uh, and problems of uh, consociational power sharing, uh, partly from a comparative perspective, but, but, but also uh, zooming in on the, on the Arab world. And so the idea was to interrogate the utility of consociational power sharing in post-war societies and to look at it first theoretically uh, outside the Arab world, mm -hmm. but then to zoom in on the two case studies that uh, we have in the Arab world, which is Lebanon, of course, and Iraq, but also to think a bit uh, uh, out loud about the possibilities of, uh, of uh, using, the, uh, using consociational power sharing uh, in in the cases of Syria, Libya, uh, and Yemen. So, if, so if you look at the the Lebanon and Iraq case studies, um, you had yourself and Jean Nagel and uh, Toby Dodge writing those, I believe. Um, the uh, how would you go? How would you evaluate then, or how would they evaluate the performance of consociationalism in those two cases? Okay, let me, let me just say something before I get into the cases, okay, sure. because I, I think a big, a, big, I mean, a big contribution of the special issue is, uh, is uh, to say something about the, the critique of consociational power sharing from within. So, for example, uh, the contribution by Alison McCulloch and Joanne McEvoy try to, they bring in a new way of thinking about why consociational power sharing works in some places, but not in others. Mm -hmm. And what is interesting in that, in that paper is they look at the interaction between macro institutional types. So whether it is liberal or corporate consociation. So Le Lebanon is the example of corporate consociation right. in the Arab world, 
Iraq is considered liberal, and, and the difference is really about uh, predetermining the sectarian quota in, in parliament specifically. So the interaction between the macro-institutional uh, types of, of, of consociation and micro-institutional rules, you know, whether they are formal and informal. And, and so Alison and Joanne are creating this kind of new approach, which would help them to uh, test the viability of consociational power sharing arrangements uh, along these two, two lines. But what is interesting is that in the, in, the, in the series, you have a very robust critique of consociation coming from people like Paul Dixon and Ibrahim Halewi, both of whom make the argument that the problem with consociational power sharing is that it, 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 it politicizes one identity and it's sort of, it excludes the possibility of other identities being important for, for political mobilization. Paul Dixon makes this very straightforward argument that consociation of democracy in, 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 the, in the Arab world has led to sectarian authoritarianism. Brahim Halewe makes the argument that consociational power sharing is nothing but counter-revolution by elites. Mm -hmm. And so elites use this, uh, the cover of consociation to maintain their power. And so, and so let's see how does that play out in some of the case studies that you looked at then. Absolutely. So in the cases, so there's a, as you know very well, there's a long literature on consociationalism in Lebanon. Uh, Iraq is a more recent case of, of consociation, but what the contributions by John Nagel who has this fabulous title for his book, Zombie Power Sharing. Zombie Power Sharing. Uh, yeah. And Toby Dodge is, both are looking at two different types of consociational power sharing. So in the case of Lebanon, it's corporate, as we've just mentioned. In the case of Iraq, it's considered, uh, it's, it's considered liberal. In the case of Iraq also, the rules of the game are really informal, uh, uh, much like the informality of uh, the first the national pact and then some of the agreements made around uh, the the the, the, the agreement but in both cases whether it's liberal or corporate the critique zooms in on what has happened to the state to public institutions and to the reification of sectarian identities in in in, in the cases of Lebanon and Iraq so you have for example uh, both of them uh, uh, converge on the fact that what consociational power sharing has done in the cases of Lebanon and Iraq is that it incentivizes sectarian and ethnic types of mobilization. It serves elite political interests. It creates the kind of institutional dysfunction that makes any kind of reform and change uh, impossible. It ossifies uh, identities. Uh, Toby Dodge makes this argument in the case of Iraq about how consociationalism has actually led to systematically sanctioned corruption. And so in both cases, what we can see is the damage done by consociational power sharing to the state and the institutions of the state, plus the fact that it incentivizes certain kinds of identities and types of mobilization at the expense of, of, of others. 
And then when you, when you go on to look at the possibility of, uh, of new forms of power sharing, like Steve Heidemann's paper on Syria or uh, Simon Maybone's on Bahrain, it's hard to be, see very much uh, optimism there for, uh, for those kinds of arrangements. Yeah, I, I mean, St Steve Heidemann's piece actually makes this argument that despite the deck being arranged in such a way against consociationalism, but it may be the case that, uh, that um, uh, consociationalism may be part of the solution in, in, in a kind of a post-war Syria for a number of practical reasons. In his case, he makes the argument that unlike uh, sorry, that he makes the argument that much like the cases of Lebanon or say Bosnia, in this case, the power sharing arrangement will be imposed from the outside by Russia, but it will be done to legitimize the regime, but more importantly, to open the doors for the kind of money you need for post-war reconstruction. So even though the regime may not like it at this stage or want it, but it might, it might be inescapable in the long term. Uh, Simon Maben's piece uh, looks at this, but from the, from the inside rather than from the outside in, in the sense that it may be the case that genuine reconciliation and peace in Bahrain may have to come with a kind of an informal uh, consociational uh, power sharing arrangement that would defuse the, 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 the opposition that has built up in, in, the, in the past decades. I like that the special issue uh, featured uh, scholars who really quite sharply disagreed with each other on, uh, on this concept. Absolutely, and that was the intention, is to create dialogue that would use cases from the Arab world against the theory of consociation to push the theory forward. And one of the things, one of the spin-offs out of this project is that Toby Dodge and I are now working on a new project and we have a workshop next year on this, is to look at the kind of assumptions the power sharing literature makes about the state and whether these assumptions actually are viable in the kind of states we have in the, in the Arab world. And we're using, of course, as examples, Lebanon and, and, and Iraq. Because if you, if you look at the power sharing literature, it takes the state for granted. And the argument we are making is that that, that, that kind of assumption cannot be made in the cases of Lebanon and Syria, right. sorry, Lebanon and Iraq, because the state is actually at the heart of the struggles uh, that are being waged uh, and, uh, and the political economy of the state and the institutions of the state are part of this struggle for control. That sounds really, really interesting. Well, I want to thank uh, Basil Salouk, uh, Lebanese American University, for joining us to talk about his uh, special issue in uh, studies in ethnicity and nationalism. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. Always a pleasure. Hi, this is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're joined today by Carolyn Barnett, Steve Monroe, and in absentia, Amani Jamal, to talk about their new article in the American Journal of Political Science, Earned Income and Women's Segmented Empowerment, Experimental Evidence from Jordan. Uh, Carolyn, Stephen, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Thanks so, for having us. So tell, tell us about the article. 
Sure. Um, well, first, thank you so much for having us. Um, so this article looks at broadly at the question of whether earning income uh, empowers women in societies known to be sort of strongly patriarchal. Um, and we look at this in the context of Jordan. So briefly, the sort of main headline finding of the paper is that we show how patriarchal norms constrain the effects of relative earned income on women's bargaining power, um, as well as women's preferences uh, for getting paid employment opportunities in the first place. Um, so to do this, uh, we ran two different experiments, uh, original experiments in Amman, Jordan. Um, the first experiment, which we uh, call the bargaining uh -oh. experiment, um, was a lab experiment run across uh, five different neighborhoods in Amman over the course of about a week. Um, and in this experiment, we had people come together in, in sort of a group of about 16 people um, they first had to participate in an effort task, um, which in this case was sort of looking at, you know, two of those pictures that mm -hmm. are basically the same but differ in just very minor details. And we asked them to try to, you know, spot as many differences as they could. Um, and then we told them that based on their performance on this task, um, they were either uh, sort of below average or above average. Um, and this, this was in the, the treatment sessions that we had. Mm -hmm. um, and they were given an endowment uh, you know, a sort of voucher for some money that reflected their performance. Um, and then, you know, to compare against something, we also had control sessions where people were sort of all told that they were average and they were all given exactly the same amount of money. And then we had them participate in four rounds of bargaining mm -hmm. um, where we varied whether they were matched with someone uh, from the same sex or someone from the opposite sex. And we set it up so that they were always matched to get someone who had the opposite endowment than they did. So someone who had gotten a low endowment was always paired with someone who had a high endowment. And then we asked them to use their pooled resources um, to make a decision, which uh, involved you know, a little bit of risk um, so that it would have some stakes for them. So we asked them to imagine that they were um, partners in a company that needed to pick a health insurance plan uh, for their employees. So either one that would be a little bit more expensive um, upfront, but then wouldn't cost very much if they did have to sort of pay out because there was sickness in the company, um, you know, all the way down to a, a cheaper plan um, upfront that would involve paying out more if sickness occurred. And they didn't know upfront whether, you know, they would have to have make that later payout. And so we asked them to come to a joint decision about which plan out of uh, six different options that they wanted. And so the idea was that we wanted to see, we didn't necessarily care about their preferences uh, per se. What we cared about was sort of whose preference won. Mm -hmm. So we looked at um, you know, their initial preferences, which they had to tell us before they started to deliberate. Um, and then we looked at what the pair's final choice was. And we said the winner, uh, you know, quote unquote winner, was the person um, whose initial preference was closest. Um, to the final choice of the pair. Um, and so as they were having these deliberations, um, which could last for a few minutes, um, we measured a few things. So we measured how long they deliberated. Um, we also measured you know, this final um, winning or losing variable. And we also audio recorded these uh, deliberations so that we could sort of qualitatively get a sense mm -hmm. of how they went. And at the end, we found um, that women who were given randomly uh, these higher incomes than their partners, um, behaved more efficaciously than women with lower incomes in that they tended to bargain for longer 
um, and, and sort of, you know, more forcefully advocate for their preferences. Um, but they were only more influential over the final outcome when they were paired with other women. Um, so more specifically, we found that um, there's really no difference in the probability of winning the bargaining round between women with high and low endowments um, if their partner was a man. Um, however, when we looked at pairs where both people were women, it was very clear that the women with higher endowments were more likely to have an outcome that matched their preferences. So we sort of saw that the endowment effect that you would expect, um, you know, that the sort of more empowered person got their way, but only in these same-sex pairs. Um, so that was the bargaining game. It's a little complicated. Yeah, it's but, complicated, um, but very yeah. interesting. Um, and then the second experiment was a little bit more standard. Um, it was a conjoint survey experiment where we used hypothetical job opportunities to assess how different features of a job uh, affect women's preferences. So for this, um, we ran a face-to-face -face survey with 300 women in different neighborhoods around Amman. Um, each respondent was shown descriptions of a pair of two hypothetical job opportunities where the individual features were randomized. So these included whether the wages were below average, average, or above average, um, whether the job provided daycare facilities, um, whether it provided transportation to and from work, which can be a big deal uh, in Amman, um, whether there was space um, for uh, ablution and prayer throughout the day, um, which might um, be attractive to more religious participants. Um, and finally, whether the job required uh, working with men. Um, and so each participant had to rate the two jobs. They had to say which one they'd prefer over the other. And they had to say for each job whether they would ultimately be willing to accept it um, if it was in their field or area of expertise. Um, and what we found was that, you know, unsurprisingly, um, higher wages make jobs more attractive, lower wages make jobs less attractive. Um, but next to that, um, mixed sex workspaces were a really strong deterrent. Um, so in terms of making a job less desirable, um, having to work alongside men was actually a stronger deterrent than a job having below average wages, um, which we thought was a very, um, you know, surprisingly strong effect. So um, overall, what the paper shows is that, you know, this, this challenge of needing to interact with men, which we, um, you know, portray as, as being part of a sort of broader culture of patriarchal norms can both constrain women's desire to engage in paid labor in the first place through this aversion to um, mixed sex jobs, um, but it can also segment the empowering effects of the income they earn where they're sort of more influential um, with other women when they earn money, but not necessarily with men. It's really interesting. So Steve, what, what did you make of all of this? That's a great question. I think, on the one hand, going into this, Carolyn, Amani, and I were primarily motivated by two factors. Uh, one was that the Arab world has very high levels of gender inequality relative to, to other parts of the world. And second, the Arab world has also very, very low uh, rates of uh, female labor force participation. And so what motivated these two studies to begin with was really trying to tease out uh, this relationship between the two. And we felt that both the lab experiments as well as the conjoint was a good way to try to get both ends of uh, kind of these two dynamics, both the entering into the labor force as well as the outcome of, of gender, gender relations. Historically, people have argued that both academics and uh, practitioners have argued that uh, labor force participation is a precondition 
uh, for advancing uh, gender equality. And a more recent uh, scholarship kind of questions that the causal arrow might be going the other way. Precisely, we have to focus on gender uh, attitudes or ameliorating um, relations between genders for, um, I guess, the empowering effects of income to take hold. So like earning income and being able to use earned income to invest or to empower oneself are, are two very different features. Um, I think going into this experiment and coming out of it, both of us were very sort of surprised at the notion of how segmented uh, empowerment could be, that we could only really find this relationship, particularly in the lab experiment, uh, among same uh, gender, gender pairs, I feel. And this contributes to uh, a new scholarship that kind of nuances what are, what are perhaps overtly simplistic um, perceptions of the relationship between earning income and uh, empowerment. That's really interesting. So, so then what do, you, what do you guys see as like the major contribution of, of the article? Where, where is it leading? What is it building towards? Sure. So I see uh, sort of two, two major contributions. Um, the first is on the methodological side, which I think, you know, Steve might talk a little bit more about in a minute, um, which is the application of these sort of experimental techniques um, through designs that we really you know, we thought very carefully about and really tailored to the Jordanian context um, to get at questions that um, have, have certainly been addressed many times before, um, but typically more through, um, you know, sort of ethnographic studies or observational studies, which are obviously incredibly valuable, um, but makes it tricky to tease out some of the, as Steve just mentioned, some of the direction of causality here, mm -hmm. um, as well as to pinpoint some of the nuances of sort of in which ways um, earning income might empower people. Um, so I think one is, um, you know, this is, um, you know, to our knowledge, one of the first sort of experimental studies to really look at this question uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, there's been some really interesting work coming out of South Asia that looks at this. Um, and so we, you know, we've enjoyed being in dialogue with, um, with a lot of those scholars. But I think it's something that, um, you know, there's still a lot of room for more empirical, more sort of experimental um, work to be done um, in the MENA region, getting at different aspects of this question. So we hope that this inspires, you know, people to replicate our study, people to, uh, you know, look at different aspects of this question in, in similar ways or in different ways. Um, and I would say the second main contribution is um, sort of what Steve highlighted a minute ago, which is the challenge, thinking about how, you know, this challenge of women interacting with men who may hold, um, you know, sort of patriarchal attitudes, or who, or for whom um, interaction with men may come with real costs, either personal or social, um, and thinking about how that affects multiple aspects of this supposed, um, you know, link between employment and empowerment that is often touted, and I, and that I I don't think we like overturn the idea that they, you know, that employment matters for empower empowerment, um, but I do think it sort of nuances that in terms of thinking about. Um, you know, what has to change first um, in order for that to be a really plausible pathway. Um, and in particular, I think that, um, you know, the really strong deterrent effect of needing to work alongside men is something that uh, it surprised even us how strong that was. Um, and I think it's something that deserves a lot more study is sort of um, unpacking the mechanisms behind that, which unfortunately our study wasn't really able to do. Um, so, 
you know, whether, whether that aversion is really driven by uh, family opposition, perhaps, um, or concerns about social judgment, um, worries about sexual harassment, or as the bargaining game showed, maybe it's actually that they anticipate that they won't be able to be very effective, right? Like if you, if you know that in an environment where, you know, you're interacting with men all the time, the expectation is going to be that they're the ones whose voices matter and they're the ones who get their way, that may not be a really attractive environment to work in, right? Um, and, and this is something we point out in the paper that you also see certainly not just in Jordan and certainly not just in the MENA region, but there's a lot of uh, research showing that, um, you know, women um, sort of self-select out of environments that they anticipate will be discriminatory. Um, and so I think this, in a way, our, our paper contributes by showing that, you know, that's, that's also an issue here. And it's something that if we do care about getting women in the labor force um, should probably be addressed. Building off Carolyn's. Yes, yeah, yeah, Steve, you, 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 we were promised we would hear about the methods from you. No, no, no. But, well, from a policy perspective, we end the paper, the article, exploring the role of gender segregation as, as a boon or, or a bane to, to increasing uh, women's uh, labor force participation. And what are the so-called implications of that? Um, gender segregation is becoming increasingly popular in the region. Uh, we recently uh, posted a blog at the Economic Research Forum Policy Forum where we look at kind of remote work as uh, a tool for gender segregation, whether or not, what are the, the pros and cons of that in terms of enabling, um, of promoting uh, women's labor force participation. And I feel like that's an, also an exciting future area of, of research. Um, now, now to get to, to the methods, uh, one innovative part of this paper is Typically, lab experiments rely on risk, uncertainty, and financial rewards to, to try to get participants to play and to take these lab experience, uh, experiments uh, seriously. Um, often these games come in the form of gambling, uh, which is socially unacceptable in many uh, Middle Eastern contexts. So one innovative feature of this project was by framing uh, the lab experiments in terms of insurance, which is all about mitigating losses, it's a good way of kind of channeling or leveraging uh, incentives, risks, and rewards, but applying them uh, to a Middle Eastern context. I also like the fact that in both projects or both experiments, because gender politics is highly politicized, uh, by being very upfront about that, we, we were worried about biasing both the numerators, respondents, and respondents. And so the conjoint experiments as well as the lab experiment are both effectively kind of mask what we're actually interested in, which is gender empowerment by using other tropes, whether it's hypothetical employment opportunities or health insurance to try to really tease out uh, attitudes towards uh, gender equality. Well, it's a really, really interesting paper. Congratulations on publishing it. Um, and uh, we've been listening to Carolyn Barnett, uh, graduate student at Princeton, uh, Steve Monroe from Yale and U.S. College, and uh, the third author, Amani Jamal, also at Princeton University, about their new article in the American Journal of Political Science. Um, thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Welcome back. This is the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our section on new books in the field of Middle East politics. 
Um, joining us today is Aaron Rock Singer from the History Department of the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, to talk about his new book, Practicing Islam in Egypt, Print Media and Islamic Revival, which was published last year by Cambridge. Uh, Aaron, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. So tell us about the book. Um, what do you think the major new contribution of practicing in Islam in Egypt is? So this is a book about the emergence of an Islamic revival in Egypt in the 1970s. And I came to this book essentially from a place of confusion, namely trying to understand where this revival came from, or to put it more bluntly, how religion or piety became the norm rather than the exception in contemporary Egypt. Because if one goes around Egypt, one realizes very quickly that there's a confusion as to where this project came from. That Muslim brothers and Salafis say it's about them, that functionaries of state religious institutions and scholars at Azhar say it's about them. And so I really wanted to go back into the history and figure out how this shift emerged and who was involved in it. Uh, and so my book really makes three interventions. One is to really look at the origins of the key practices of piety that define this revival, practices of daily prayer, of gender relations, and of Islamic education. Uh, and in contrast to a lot of the existing work, which assumes that these projects of piety today in Egypt and beyond emerge from a longer Islamic tradition, often called the diachronic tradition of piety, I found that these projects actually emerge primarily from modernist notions of order and social change. Mm -hmm. The second contribution of the book is to look at Islamist and state projects of religious mobilization in a different way. Traditionally, we think of these projects as functioning essentially in parallel, but what I find is that the projects of piety of the Islamic revival were the product of essentially the cross-pollination of these competing projects and that they were both deeply shaped by and emerged within state institutions. So here we can think of state institutions as a really important site for the negotiation of these projects. And finally, to come back to this point about state institutions, we learn something about the state through this book. It's not a place that, it's not a set of spaces that is ideologically uniform, let alone coherent. Instead, it really is one of the key sites for the subtle negotiations of the role of Islam in daily life and more broadly, the relationship between Islam and politics. That's it, there's a lot of great stuff there. Before we get into the, um, the, the specifics and the details, let's talk a little bit about your methods because uh, you did something really, really quite interesting um, in, as you went about trying to dig into this. So tell us about kind of the raw materials for your book. So the, the raw materials for my book, broadly speaking, is Islamic print media uh, and to a lesser extent, audio cassette sermons and recordings that have been preserved by MP3. And what I did was, to really flip the script in terms of how historians generally read Islamic print media, in my case, specifically Islamic magazines. And so I actually began with the popular correspondence in, this, in these journals and magazines. Uh, so I looked at fatwa requests, I looked at letters to the editor. And what I was essentially seeking to do, drawing on an ideologically diverse set of magazines, was to understand the relationship between top-down projects of religious mobilization and local claims to piety and the, and the ways in which these top-down projects on the one hand shaped local spaces, but on the other hand were shaped 
by the very concrete issues, issues of access, issues of class, um, issues of how to negotiate going to school um, or working within a state institution that really were central to restructuring social life. Um, and so in this respect, I drew on a longer literature of print culture to really think creatively about how we might use Islamic magazines as a source, not only of intellectual, but also of social history. You make a strong case for the importance of these magazines. Um, and uh, you actually show uh, like who was reading them and uh, how the, and where and how they circulated. So tell us a little bit about these. Uh, convince us that these Islamic magazines mattered. So these magazines mattered for a few reasons. One is that they were the key site for two of our key, our key players in the story, namely Muslim Brothers and Salafis. That if you don't have access to state institutions in a formal sense, you don't have access to the pulpit of state institutions, whether a literal pulpit in a mosque or a metaphorical pulpit um, in the sense of being having spokespeople who have for particular visions, you need a way to communicate with a national audience. And at this time, Islamic movements in Egypt didn't have any other way to communicate with a national audience, let alone a transnational audience. They didn't have access to the newspapers, they didn't have access to the radio, and they didn't have access to television. And so and, the, and finally, while they had access to audio cassettes, audio cassettes as a medium had a crucial weakness. Namely, they were very good at getting a message out, but not terribly great at allowing you to get feedback on that message. And so it's for that reason that Islamic movements during this period really focused on the magazine as a medium because it was the only medium that on the one hand allowed them to reach a mass audience, and on the other hand allowed them to get feedback from that audience. And so it's very clever then how you use these. So um, tell us a little bit about what you did with these magazines, like the fatwas, the letters to the editor, the, um, and also kind of the, the, the professional and geographic breakdowns that you were able to, to uh, infer from what you found. So, so this is really the, the substance of chapter two of the book. And it, it began with a basic question, namely, to what extent does socioeconomic position or geography predict which ideological project one supports. Uh, and we really have very little data on this. Uh, and so what I did was I essentially created a data set out of the subject lines of letters to the editor and fatwa requests in three out of the four magazines. So you one could of, be a political scientist going and creating data sets. <laughs> well, I, I certainly found myself uh, sometimes talking more to political scientists about this than historians. Um, and, but what I, what I did was, I, I knew that I couldn't generalize about the Egyptian population more generally uh, in terms of this data, but I could say something about the letters that appeared in these magazines. And while those letters weren't reflective of the readership as a whole, there's still this issue of the selection criteria of the editors that I wasn't able to recover. Uh, they do tell us something about who participated in these projects, both geographically and socioeconomically. And my real finding in this respect was that in terms of both geography and socioeconomics, the constituencies 
for these magazines didn't differ very much. That one could be a middle-class Egyptian living in the Delta, living in Upper Egypt, or living in Cairo and Alexandria, and appeal and find the Brotherhood's vision appealing, find Salafi visions appealing, or find state visions appealing. And I, I do think this is an important point in terms of understanding the Islamic revival specifically in broader negotiations of religion and politics in Egypt, more generally is that if one is looking for a project of piety, one may turn to state institutions. This isn't simply a, there are folks who do this very sincerely, uh, and it's a way actually of understanding some of the divisions in Egypt today between piety and support for Islamism, uh, namely that there were many pious Egyptians who support and there are many pious Egyptians who support Abdul Fattah Hassisi. And this doesn't make any sense unless we understand that going back to this period of the Islamic revival, a turn to piety and a turn to Islamism or Salafism were not the same thing. Now, it's not new in the study of, uh, of Egyptian Islamism to observe that this is uh, primarily a middle class phenomenon, but you have a, an interesting spin on that where you talk about this middle class desire for religious respectability and how that actually, you know, it, as, you, as you said before, uh, you have like the, the consumers of this in some ways actually shaping what uh, the movements are, and or state institutions are providing. Yeah, I, I, so I think what is really important to realize about religiosity in 1970s Egypt is that it isn't simply about observance. It's also about distinguishing yourself from those who know less about proper observance. That there are, of course, uh, of course longstanding models of piety in Egypt and elsewhere in the Middle East of what it means to be a pious Muslim. And one of the things that really happens over the 20th century that I think really comes together in the context of the Islamic revival in the 1970s is that it, piety really becomes a project not merely of sincere intention or a commitment to structuring your life in a certain way, but of the need to know about legal debates, of the need to know about ideological questions, that it becomes, in some sense, yet another divider of class, that to be truly pious, one needs to be an educated middle-class Muslim, not simply a Muslim who, looking around, follows Islamic law as they best can. Uh, and this is, this is in some sense akin to many of the ideological projects which were predominantly mm -hmm. middle-class in 20th century Egypt. It's in some sense an offshoot of the Effendia project, um, which contrasts itself with the ostensible lack of knowledge or ignorance of previous historical periods. Uh, and in doing so, essentially tries to achieve a, a double move where on the one hand, claiming continuity with a longer tradition of revival and reform, but on the other hand, actually advancing this notion that education is central to piety. So there's a, let's, let's start get, getting into some of the substance of this now, because it's, it's all really, really interesting. Um, the, um, let's talk about the daily prayers. It's a yep. really fascinating chapter where you trace the way uh, uh, the daily prayer becomes a battlefield for um, 
on all parts for uh, it creating this new kind of religiosity. So walk us through that a little bit and what you found from the magazines and how you think that, how do you think it mattered? Well, I'm happy you enjoyed this chapter because this was probably my favorite chapter of the book. Yeah, it's a great chapter. Um, so I, I essentially, I came to the story of prayer with the assumption that the key battleground would be the Friday prayer. And then I realized that there was very little discussion of the Friday Jummah prayer in these magazines. Instead, it was the performance of daily prayer and specifically the performance of the early afternoon Vuhar prayer. And it didn't take me long to realize exactly why the Vilhar prayer achieved so much prominence, because it was the only one of the five daily prayers that fell smack dab in the middle of the school day and the work day. So if you wanted to entrench a project of pious prayer within state institutions, there wasn't a better way to, this was basically the best way one could possibly do it. Uh, and at a time when Egypt's president, Anwar Sadat, described himself as the believing president, it was hard to deny the obligation to perform one's five daily prayers. Now, the shift here, and what's so interesting about the use of the Dhuhr among Islamic movements as a tool of religio-political challenge is that there are two ruptures from a longer tradition of the laws of prayer, of the, of the fiqh tradition on prayer. One is that, that historically speaking, Muslims are required to perform each prayer within a set amount of time. We're talking about a couple of hour period. We're not talking about praying immediately when the call to prayer sounds or a require, an uh, obligation to pray immediately. The second is that there isn't any sense that that early afternoon Dhar prayer or any of the, uh, of the other prayers except for the Friday Jum'ah prayer need to be collective. What's so interesting about the popularization of the Dhuhr prayer in 1970s Egypt is the assumption, A, that one needs to pray it immediately upon the call to prayer, and secondly, that one needs to do so collectively. Um, and interestingly enough, in contrast to the Jum'ah prayer, which technically does not, which technically only men are required to do collectively, but not women, in the case of the Lohar prayer, these Islamic movements, which had their anxieties about women's public presence, were arguing that both men and women should be praying the Lohar prayer uh, in essentially separate spaces in the same mosque. And so it's really a story of the way in which this longer tradition of prayer as a subset of a longer tradition of piety is repurposed. It's repurposed to lay claim to state institutions, not merely in a spatial sense, and that's often the way we think of these projects that target state institutions, that they seek to control space, but also to use the temporality of state institutions against them, to say, you know what? Bureaucratic temporality doesn't matter. What really matters is God's temporality. Um, and for state institutions, this was, a hard, uh, this was a hard project to turn back precisely because it exploited this, the, it exploited what was ostensibly a very clear question of Islamic law to introduce a subtle but really significant change. And then you saw that playing out in the schools, for example. Yeah, it was, it was really difficult. For, it was essentially this battle on a very granular level of how does one handle this if one is a school principal or if one is a school administrator? And 
one gets the sense that they're, you know, really not a coherent project of how to handle this. So in some cases, we have school administrators really cracking down on the students in other cases and doing so violently. Uh, in other cases, we have school administrators on a local level essentially saying, go ahead, we can restructure the school day to facilitate this. Uh, and so it really, in, it really just happens on the grassroots level, but then is really organized through uh, the Muslim Brotherhoods magazine in particular um, as a way of engaging in this project of grassroots religious mobilization without access to any real institutional spaces. Because if we remember the Brotherhood's position in the 70s, they really, the, the famed Brotherhood Tanvim of, of the early um, 1950s and the 1940s really doesn't exist at this point. They're really just all getting out of prison um, or have just gotten out of prison. And as a result, there's a need for a project that can take advantage of spaces that the Brotherhood doesn't otherwise control. Now, there's another, one of the other sites that you can see this playing out, but where maybe the state plays a more active role is in the, uh, the chapters that you have on uh, curricular reform and this yes. idea of Islamic education. So how does that look different when you, when you have this very active role for, um, for uh, state bureaucrats? So, th so this is, in some sense, the story of ed Islamic education in Egypt is in some sense a story of a path not taken. Because between 1976 and 1979, and the Brotherhood's magazine, the Dawah, only starts to publish in 76, and they really drive forward the development of a revival once they start publishing. Um, they're negotiating with the Ministry of Education to reform public religious education. They really haven't gotten into developing alternative projects of Islamic education. There's a sense in the Brotherhood at this time that perhaps the state can be negotiated with, perhaps the Brotherhood doesn't need to establish a parallel Islamic educational project that, you know, one that is so apparent in the 1980s and the 1990s. Uh, and what unites these ostensibly very different ideological competitors, competitors is a shared belief that education can serve to transform society. That mm -hmm. education is really one of the major avenues for religio-political transformation. And this is an idea that has very little basis, again, in longer traditions of revival and reform. It's a deeply modern idea of how societies work, of, of the power of the modern state, uh, and of how to use that power. And essentially what happens is from 76 to 79, they negotiate for a variety of reasons, some related to attempts, disagreements over curricular reform, some related to broader political wins in Egypt, most notably um, Sadat's visit to Jerusalem and the development of Egyptian-Israeli relations, there, and, as well as the case against um, the jihadi group Jamaat al-Muslimin, also known as al-Takfir wal-Hijra. This potential relationship falls apart um, and then leads the brother to seek to create a parallel Islamic project, one in which on the one hand, the Brotherhood and to the lesser extent, um, groups such as the Jamia Sharia and the Salafi Ansar Sunnah Muhammadiyah play a key role, but also one that is distinguished by a certain level of autodidactic education. Uh, one buys pamphlets, one buys audio cassette sermons, and one becomes an educated Muslim 
based on purchasing these materials. Um, but this is, in some sense, had the period between 76 and 79 gone a bit differently, had state institutions been a bit more flexible, we might never have seen the rise of a parallel Islamic educational sector that we have, that we really had for the next um, several decades uh, until the shifts of the post 2011 period. Whereas the Salafis thought this was a disastrous idea from the start. Yeah, they were pretty skeptical. Um, they were skeptical for two reasons. Uh, one was because of the Salafi conviction that if a project isn't built on sound creed, on sound Akida, then it ultimately is defective um, in anything that it produces. Uh, that this, core, this uh, core corruption means that nothing good can come out of this kind of project. Uh, the second is that Salafis are not at this early point fully comfortable working beyond the mosque, that they're just starting to figure out what kind of religio-political vision do they have? Uh, how do they want to engage with state institutions? To what extent do they really want to continue their strategy of the 1950s and 60s of flying under the radar um, and really focusing on mosques and mosque preaching? Um, and so there's essentially a split that with Ansar Sunnah al-Muhammadiyah, Egypt's leading quietest Salafi organization, essentially steers clear of these conversations. The Brotherhood on the Islamist side is very involved. And then we have the Jama'a Shari'a, which is essentially split between Salafis who are inclined towards Islamism uh, and individuals who are inclined to Isl towards Islamism, but aren't particularly Salafi. Um, so we have kind of, I, I described this magazine that they pub, that uh, leaders in the group published Al-Atisam as Salafi Islamist to essentially symbolize this hybrid. Um, but really there's a split uh, where there's a real question of how this can serve a broader project. And Salafis by and large are pretty skeptical that engaging with state institutions serves that broader project. Now they're not quite sure how to engage in a broader project. And that's something we really see develop over the course of the 1980s in particular. Now, I guess the last big uh, uh, area that you focus on is uh, these changing ideas about, about gender relations and, um, and modesty and veiling. And it was really fascinating the way that you kind of see the Muslim Brotherhood's position changing in response to these middle-class um, you know, these middle-class people who are trying to navigate the workplace and the like. So tell us about that then as, a, as the final like, major um, empirical component of the book. So I think too often we think about Islamic movements and default to this notion that their visions of female modesty are about removing women from public space. And particularly in the case of Salafis, we do this. Um, and what's so striking about both the original project of female modesty of, and more generally of con socially conservative gender relations that assume men and women will be in the same place rather than separate um, is that they don't, they don't seek to return women to the home. They are premised on the idea that women are in public space. Uh, and this makes a lot of sense if we think about the broader demographic and educational changes of Egypt during this period, namely that more and more women have access to education, more and more women have access to employment, um, but it's really striking because then the issue is not how does one 
prevent male-female interaction, but rather how does one regulate something that is invariably going to happen? Um, and so here we see actually a, a engagement with a, a set of pre-modern ideals of how to regulate this kind of interaction, of averting one's gaze, of speaking, for women of speaking softly, um, for men and women of not being alone with one another. This is the prohibition against chalwa. Um, now, what I would say about this story, which, is so which was so interesting to me, is that in some sense, and the legacy of this project over the 1980s and 90s into the early 2000s, is that all of the different claimants of the Islamic revival in Egypt get used to women in public. And they don't just get used to it as a necessity, but they end up articulating competing visions of what women's role in public should be. Uh, now, in the case of those who are um, aligned with statist visions, it tends to be an argument for why female sexuality isn't as dangerous as it's been depicted uh, by Muslim brothers and Salafis, while for the Brotherhood and Salafis, it's about making an argument for why women serve the Islamic project best when they're in public space, or why their existence in public space serves the Islamic project, even as ideals of domesticity may persist. Um, and so here, I'll give you a particular uh, notable example. Salafis in the 1970s talk a lot about the necessity of gender segregation. This is, a, in some sense, a project of piety in 1970s Egypt that exists on the margins of the Islamic revival. But in the 1980s and 90s, not only do they come to accept that women are going to be in public space, but they even start to talk about well, are all forms of mixing, ikhtilat, forbidden? Or is there such a thing as permitted mixing? Mm -hmm. um, and this, this emerges really towards the late 90s and early 2000s. But it's, it's in some sense an amazing claim. Because in the 1970s, this, the Salafis in Ansara Sunnah, and to a lesser extent in the Jamia Sharia, say there's no form of mixing that is permitted. This is clearly forbidden. But by you know, three decades later, they're starting to say, actually, there are, some of them are saying anyway, and then they get pushback. Actually, there are permitted forms of mixing. If the woman is serving a particular role, if she is adhering to the strictures of modesty. Um, and so here we have a real transformation, not merely of state institutions and the basic structures of these institutions, but also of the guiding logics of Egypt's leading Islamic movements. No, it's really interesting. Um, one last thing, uh, I think my, my favorite uh, uh, find of yours from the Islamic magazines has to be the one where Adatwa um, uh, was able to identify Richard Mitchell, author of the Society of the Muslim Brothers, as the CIA station chief with a plan to <laughs> the Islamic movement. Um, so just tell us a little bit about that because it's such a great find. So, so this is, so Richard Mitchell, this is one of these moments where you're reading the magazine. Um, and it, actually this appears in Adawa and also in uh, the Jamia Sharia's affiliated magazine, Al-Atisam, where you scratch your head because here we have a premier scholar of the Muslim Brotherhood um, who's, we have no absolute zero evidence that he had any relationship to the CIA, but there's an article that appears 
in first in Adawa, which essentially claims all these projects of piety that the Islamic opposition movements have been involved in, attributes it to Richard Mitchell as a CIA agent and says, there's an effort to repress these, to prevent piety from emerging in Egypt. Now I'll simply say, if at this point, Richard Mitchell could have come up with all of these practices that were so intimately part of um, the Muslim Brotherhood's efforts, of the efforts of the Islamic student movement, of the efforts of Ansar al al Muhammadiyah and the Jamia Sharia, then my, my hat is off um, to him as someone with a uh, granular knowledge of the day to day. But what I actually think happened here is that they essentially wrote up a list of the things they had been doing and in an attempt to preempt domestic efforts to repress them, tried to depict them as a CIA, uh, tried to depict it as a CIA plot to repress them. Um, and so I've, I, I looked long and hard to see if there was any better interpretation of this, but that was certainly the best one I could come up with. And, uh, that was great. Um, okay, so we've been, we've been speaking with uh, Aaron Rock Singer of the University of Wisconsin at Madison about his new, his new book, Practicing Islam in Egypt, just published by Cambridge University Press. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.